This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop. And hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on the podcast today is Harry Brundage, co-founder and CEO at Gadget. Have you ever heard the Mark Andreessen quote, software is eating the world? Yeah. We would say, like, it's not done yet. It's a very big meal, the world. And there's just like a lot of kind of unautomated business processes or kind of like people sitting in cubicles, copy and pasting data between different systems. You know, we just believe that there's a huge number of problems that have yet to be solved with software. And we're just excited about kind of enabling those builders to do that. This is Harry. He's a hardcore developer turned into a tech entrepreneur. He worked at Shopify in numerous capacities, building and scaling Shopify's backend infrastructure, front-end technology stack, big data platform, and engineering organization. Since leaving Shopify, Harry has made many other systems, a note-taking tool, an automated vertical farm, a QA tool, all allowing him to gain first-hand experience with how repetitive software development can be. And this made him ask the question, why does this need to be so hard? Today, Harry is the co-founder and CEO of Gadget, the serverless stack for e-commerce app developers. Harry and his team are on a mission to enable developers to build ambitious software ridiculously fast. And this inspired me, and hence I invited Harry to my podcast. We explore what's broken when it comes to the speed by which we can develop business applications. Harry shares his vision about making the impossible possible for developers and how this backs up his dream to be a company builder at the end of the day. He shares his hard lessons learned about what it took to build something that makes even the most critical developers advocates. And by listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, how you can create a lot of interest and differentiation by creating a solution that's about uninteresting and undifferentiated stuff. Secondly, that one way to create momentum is to help users create the things they wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Thirdly, that creating a remarkable SaaS product is not about everything the product does, but how it makes your users feel using it. And fourthly, the lessons learned and the tough decisions he needed to make in speeding up traction and adoption. 
Well, hi, Harry. Thank you for making the time available today and being the guest in the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited. Well, I mean, I'm too. And for a couple of reasons. Funny enough, this podcast has started to share stories from tech entrepreneurs about what value we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Now I've got someone on my podcast is actually creating software for software creators. Might get the whole thing <laughs> more complex than it possibly is. But yeah, when I saw it, it was like, hey, it gave me a smile on my face. But before we start, tell me a little bit about you. If you would have to describe yourself in two or three words, what characteristics come up? I'm sure in your workshops, you promote a lot of conciseness, right? This is the ultimate challenge. <laughs> Maybe I'd go with like puzzle solver oh. or like Rubik's cube. That's two words, right? <laughs> yeah. I think the thing that I enjoy the most about business, about technology, about kind of like the professional engagements I've had, is just the the challenge of solving ever more important and ever more like interesting problems. I've kind of since birth basically been enjoying like programming and, you know, being in my basement, nerding out and seeing what, you know, strange things I can build. But I think I'd classify that desire to build stuff as a little bit selfish or like uh -huh. the problem solving is like, it's very much an intrinsic motivation where it's like, I want to do it to see if I can do it. But I really like kind of tech entrepreneurship because it's this fusion of this thing I find really enjoyable. And then a lot of the people I like find really enjoyable with actually making an impact, like doing something for somebody who it helps, right? That it's kind of this wonderful alignment, you know? Really good. And often, of course, it starts like that. You first solve it for yourself and then becomes something, hey, there's an impact I can make with this. So what if? Like that is also a nice bridge to my next question. So you started your business or your company Gadget in May 2020. I mean, first of all, a brave, a, <laughs> a brave decision because that was three months into the pandemic. But possibly it was also because you were at home and you were trying to kind of create an impact. But what was the problem that you saw that you really wanted to solve? Good question. So I've been, as I mentioned, a software developer my whole life, and I think the craft of software development can be that really rewarding puzzle solving thing where, you know, let's design a faster algorithm or let's, you know, make a computer do something novel that it hasn't done before, like what OpenAI is doing these days. And then there's a whole other coin of it, which is just like getting the thing built and bug free and scaling and actually like solving the problem that a real person has. And often that's not very like challenging from an algorithmic standpoint, right? I know I used to work a little bit in like the ERP space, right? Not that many people, I think, writing incredibly complicated kind of math algorithms for ERPs, maybe for the inventory forecasting, whatever, but it's a lot of just like, I would call it grunt work, important grunt work, but grunt work to kind of understand a business process, model it in software, iterate with the customer to figure out what that is, like migrate the data from whatever system they're using before, just like yeah, so much sure. stuff that isn't solving a Rubik's cube, but just kind of like the real aspects of software development. So I've experienced that my whole life. And I don't want to talk about that category as bad or wrong, uh -huh. but I think it's less fun. And so like the problem that we're trying to solve with Gadget is shifting as much of that burden of the uninteresting or undifferentiated or kind of like repetitive aspects of software development off of your average developer and onto the platform. And that gives them their time back to do the interesting custom kind of unique or challenging parts of whatever they're trying to build and kind of focus on that. Yeah. I mean, I see on LinkedIn, the headline there is we build tools that allow developers to build better software faster. That's what it at the end is all about. And the funny thing is, I mean, I go back a long time in this area as well. And for some reason, every five to 10 years, we sort of raise the bar in terms of 
what we shouldn't build anymore. Right. I mean, when, when I was still in my early days, for example, at Unit 4, we used to develop printer drivers, which right. of course is, is really like ages ago. Oh, yeah. But now you're talking about yeah, complete foundations. And yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. The, the art of the clouds and be able to pull things together to create something and to get a product to market fast. I come from an area in the past where the release cycles were two years. And now I see, right. I speak to people like you, tech entrepreneurs that have started the business last year are now delivering, have live customers, paying customers, right. and, it's, yeah. and they are doing something that is transformative. That is unbelievable. Well, and I think our mission is to drive that down to a week. Like the amount of heavy lifting involved in just building any kind of like software business these days, we think is still, I don't know, 80%, 90% stuff that someone else has done before that you're just yeah. repeating. And the thing is, is that, so let's talk about some specifics here. Like a really common one is just deployment. It's like you need servers to stick your software on somewhere. The cloud has made that you know incredibly easier, but there's kind of shades of gray there, right? Where there's really rapid deployment platforms. They're like, you know, single, you run one command in your terminal and you're up and running, like say a Heroku or a Vercel or Netlify, one of those. And then there's the kind of like the hyperscale clouds that have these like a very wide array of tools you can use to assemble into your thing. But there's a whole industry built around like prescribing recipes in those tools, right? That it's actually hard to select from AWS's 1000 different ways to run a program. And so what Gadget is, is like, it's just a deployment platform where there's like zero commands. There's no like recipe selection. There's no like worrying. You like go to gadget.new, you type in the name of your app, you press enter and like your app exists and is hosted like on the internet. And that's kind of the way we think about a bunch of the different kind of tasks within software development is that there is kind of one right-ish way to do it. Maybe at the fringes or for the marginal like architecture, this architecture won't work. But it's like every big web startup that I've like talked to people from or worked at builds in roughly the same way. It's like a database at the center and this like tier of other stuff around. And so Gadget is just this like honed recipe that's like available and copyable with this one enterprise that just works. And then we try to do that for a bunch of other stuff too. So we host the database, we host the servers, we support like things like search right out of the box. Like everybody in their application expects a little search widget yeah, yeah. where you can type and find something. We support like an API so you can connect to a mobile app or to a front end. We support authorization and like a permission system. So you're able to kind of like say this person to see that, so on and so forth. And that list yeah. of like things that we just kind of have out of the box goes on forever. Each one of them are not incredibly like complicated. Like people have built many solutions to these things before. The problem is there's just like 50 of them. And yeah, so that's like, that's why it takes that two years that you mentioned to go from kind of conception to first paying customer is because you're being like, okay, who am I going to use for payments? Who am I going to use for search? Who am I going to use for hosting? Who am I, like, what front end framework am I going to use? And I would call that all undifferentiated complexity, right? That you don't exactly. win because you picked the right search provider. You win because you solve some problem in a novel way. You drove down the friction. You like have some distribution advantage. Like that's what we want people to be able to focus their time on. And we want to take the kind of repetitive or undifferentiated stuff away. Yeah, funny that you talk about it. I mean, I'm going to ask the same question like I asked many, many of the other people on the podcast. I mean, this word undifferentiated, you can lose so much time on that. And I mean, as a startup at the end, there's a runway, there's capacity, there's money. And within that, you have to fix it. And you have to create right. something that you know, your first competitor around the street cannot solve within three or four weeks as well. Yeah. So you want to kind of work on the things that set you apart. It's a really good point there. And I think it's, like I said, the bar is, you can constantly lift the bar, 
and constantly create another level of where, yeah, where we can take this. So what do you believe is the opportunity if the world starts to embrace gadget? Right. So have you ever heard the Mark Andreessen quote, software is eating the world? Yeah. We would say, like, it's not done yet. It's a very big meal, the world. And there's just like a lot of kind of unautomated business processes or kind of like people sitting in cubicles, copy and pasting data between different systems. You know, we just believe that there's a huge number of problems that have yet to be solved with software. And we're just excited about kind of enabling those builders to do that. I don't think we believe that it's like, okay, a gadget app will cure cancer or a gadget app will like, you know, fix inequality. But like to answer your earliest question about like where the idea for gadget came from, Mo and I were working, my co-founder and I were working on a kind of unremarkable startup just before the pandemic started. And then we're like, this doesn't feel nearly as important as what's happening around us. And so we switched gears and just did some like kind of nonprofit work, building a directory of businesses offering curbside and kind of delivery that weren't before for our like local community. And it was yeah. just that, you no know, Google Maps, like they were working on it, but they didn't react fast enough where like you could go figure out, you know, how do I get my groceries or who's open even? And so we just, we did a very simple software project where we like built a list of businesses, made a form for people to upload them and then just kind of marketed it around town. And it worked pretty well. Like we got really good feedback and people liked it. Ah. But the thing that we thought was, or I thought was the most interesting. And I said to Mo, I was like, I've experienced this countless times that it still took us two or three weeks just to get this thing going. Like, I really wish that there was a platform that wasn't kind of like WordPress for blogging or Shopify for selling something. Like I need something as a developer to build a community business directory, right? There's no SaaS for that, but I'm a developer and I can whip it together really quickly if I didn't have to figure out how am I going to do search? How am I going to do deployment? How am I going to do the front end? Yada, yada, yada. And so like, I think that's the kind of thing that I'm the most excited about is gadget enabling people to build new stuff that they wouldn't otherwise, like driving the barrier down to just solving maybe not trillion dollar problems, but like important problems for the people around them that maybe blossom into big and worthwhile businesses. If you can kind of get the distraction away and get them to focus on what, you know, what they come out of bed for every morning, you know, then the world is going to applaud for that because they get to enjoy that. Yeah, it's enabling. Exactly. I really like that. Was there any aha moment or moment where this sparked and you say, okay, now I have to do something about it or just get, that it came from that initial project that you were doing at the start of COVID? Like, I think that this is a feeling that most software developers have of just like, there has to be a better way. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know a lot of PMs in the industry are always like, well, any development estimate that a developer gives you, you should multiply the number by two and up the unit one. And so it's like, if someone says two days, you actually in your head hear four weeks and that ends up being more accurate, right? Like as a profession, we're like laughably bad at what we do, right? And so I think a lot of people feel that intrinsically where it's like, why am I spending time on this? Why is it so hard to predict how this is going to break? Like, why is there all this stuff that I've done a million times before confronting me and like in between me doing this and getting the actual thing I want to get done? And so I don't think it's like an aha problem discovery moment. I think the hard thing for Mo and I was like building the confidence we can actually do this or that people would use it, right? I think software developers are like a notably persnickety bunch where they want like a lot of control over the way that their systems work. They want to understand that this platform isn't going to restrict them, that like when they do find a novel or custom way to build something, they're able to do it with the platform. And so we spent a lot of time kind of validating and building up a kind of 
ethos around what the shape of this solution should look like. And the number one thing that we identified that mattered the most is control. It's that we had to make sure that we preserved the developer's control over the things that they cared about while kind of satisfying them on the things that they didn't care about. Yeah, that is understanding. I mean, you're a developer yourself, or that's at least where it came from. It's really understanding your customers really well. And I agree with you. The least thing they want to have is that they're restricted in what they can do. You already talked about like what was the hardest nut to crack, which was not the technology part, but was the confidence. Yeah, connecting to that earlier question, you're starting an incredibly big thing. You know, how did you speed up work here? How did you, what tools did you leverage right. to build this leverage? Right. Good question. I think that, so we see ourselves as a horizontal solution, if that makes sense. Like it's not a tool for building dental office software or it's not dental office software, right? It's a tool for building software writ large, like specifically web applications and like right now, specifically Shopify focused web applications. But our ambition is to build kind of the thing that would catch, you know, the next Toby who starts the next Shopify on Gadget we want to be a company builder at the end of the day. So building horizontal things like that is just, I find it phenomenally difficult because you feel forced to cater to a very wide variety of customers that have a wide variety of needs. We often look at companies like Notion or Figma or Webflow as kind of similar in the sense that they're like tools for knowledge workers, like kind of high powered software suites, but like super versatile, super adaptable to many different kind of industries, many different domains. And like those three companies are all reaping incredible rewards because of it. They're all, you know, five, six years into their journey. Plus Webflow is like 10. And so it's like, we don't have the money to survive five years of build before kind of hitting a quality enough software suite that can can be really general purpose. So I think the main thing that we did to speed up is pick a niche despite wanting to be very general purpose in the long term. And that is Shopify. So Gadget is a tool for people building like Shopify applications, either for the Shopify app store or like a custom application for one Shopify merchant. And what that allows us to do is kind of like really focus on delighting a small group of people. That's classic entrepreneurship, right? It's like pick a well, small I mean, group of people, should... delight them, you know? Yeah, but if you should hear the number of people that, that say, oh, well, we're building this thing and everybody can use it and you can use it for any type of situation and so on. Right. And don't get traction. But the, right. what happens with making it specific and giving it context, you start to attract exactly the right audience. Yeah, and it indeed. becomes something where, yeah, where you can focus to delight those people and grow and grow and grow and then take the next thing. So exactly. I only exactly. applaud for that. It's being <laughs> super specific, super niche down to make a difference. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you don't make a difference for anybody. Because where do you start? <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, yeah, it's, exactly. I think you have to um, do that. An important thing, I think, as well, is just like setting the right expectations with the kind of stakeholders. So in our case, that's our customers and our investors. And we've kind of sold them both on the idea of this sort of long-term vision of the capabilities of the platform expanding over time. And so we have lots of people that are signed up kind of for a journey as opposed to the kind of solution being perfect, you know, right out of the gate. And and that delights me, right? Because then we have this like positive relationship where we get feedback from them or even just feature requests is so useful for us to be like, okay, there's a million and one opportunities. Like, what are we going to prioritize? Like, I think that's the the hardest thing in this horizontal build is like choosing the next little slice of scope. And so, yeah, I found that to be really rewarding as well. Well, I mean, that's always a good one. Have you got any framework in terms of how you decide what to do and what to say no to? 
Because I mean, I used to ask this question or repeat a question from Steve Jobs, you know, innovation is not about what you say yes to, it's about what you say no to. How do you make those decisions? Yeah, I think we're still learning, to be completely honest. The number one thing that we've found is like comparing Gadget at the phase that it's at now, it's just like just over two years old to something like an Apple. It's like our priorities are different, right? Like our mission right now is to kind of validate our business model that people want what we have, that we can charge enough money for it to get profitable someday and that we can like sustain that innovation over time. And so we prioritize a lot of product development based on kind of like clearing the fog of war, if that makes sense. It's less about this is going to be an incredible revenue driver in five years. It's more about like, we have this hypothesis that software development should be done in a certain way. Like we don't think we can just show someone a Figma prototype and have them tell us if they like it. Like what we're talking about, kind of like power users, right? Like people who do this eight hours, 10 hours a day, who want to like bet the farm and build a company on this thing. Like that live-in experience is very different than like completing one flow in a prototype. And so we found that we kind of have to build some aspects of the product just to even know if people will, you know, forgive me, vibe with it. The challenge has been that. So I think we prioritize a lot of stuff that kind of like reveals what we should do next or like which hypotheses we're right about. And then I think the other thing is it's like, it's pretty delightful to have enough customers that they just tell you, or maybe they don't tell you exactly, but that we have a nugget of enough people using the platform that we can prioritize based on their needs. And it's like, it solves a lot of the friction that Mo and I felt early on where it's like, we have so many opportunities. We don't know what we should pursue. Now we have kind of like a signal that, you know, unites us. I mean, is there any group within that? large Shopify app builder group that fits better than others? Yeah, absolutely. So the, what, the kind what, is, of, I, what are the characteristics to how they are different? Yeah, totally. So I think there's kind of Shopify app ecosystem is a weird one because it's a B2B app store, right? It's not like an individual on their phone that has you know their fitness interests, their entertainment interests, so on and so forth. It's all businesses that are buying apps to drive more revenue or cut costs. And in that sense, like the apps are like generally pretty heavy weight and that they like do a lot. So like a classic example is like Shopify doesn't have a built-in product reviews system. And so there's like a variety of different product reviews apps that, you know, add a widget or a person to fill out a form on your product and review you. And then there's a whole kind of backend administration interface where the merchants, you know, approving reviews or trying to like placate people that are unhappy so they don't get bad reviews, so on and so forth. So there's public apps that are in the Shopify app store. I think there's like 7,000, 8,000 apps in the Shopify app store right now. And then there's maybe an order to two order magnitudes more custom apps, which are like one-off apps built privately for one Shopify merchant to integrate with some other system or to implement some kind of internal like workflow. So that's like, we have a specific tagging regime where we tag high value customers in this way. So we can target them with marketing activities, or we have a too big a product catalog to manage manually. So we use some automations for it, so on and so forth. So gadgets targeted at both of those things, but the people who it resonates the best with are front end developers. And so the reason why that's a bit strange or weird is that like, if you squint, Shopify is kind of like an ERP light or like a database, if you will, right? It's the repository of all your products, the repository of all your orders, repository of all your customers. And like front-end developers are traditionally quite good at building interfaces, but not at building out, you know, heavyweight back-end business logic that implements an automated tagging system or like a whole product review system. 
And so what Gadget represents to them is like as a backend builder is a database as a service and a place to build all this business logic and a kind of pattern to organize it. And then not much kind of implication about how the front end of that should look like. And that's, I think, the right move for us. So a front end developer comes along and is like, I have a brilliant vision for the way a product review form should look and how like the administration interface can be super efficient for a merchant. But I'm not an expert at database performance or kind of wiring up the Shopify API. And so, yeah, that's who like is most delighted with us is sort of kind of front end developers that are like three to five years into their career and just like haven't done yeah. that much back end. We hope yes. to expand from there, but it's the people that we make something kind of impossible possible for. Let me make a small interruption here. Harry just made a critical remark about what sets him up for doing something remarkable really getting into the skin of their ideal customer by being very specific in understanding what the developers that become their fans are all about. What's the specific pain they struggle with more than anyone else and when? And secondly, what they really care about and value. The magic happens when you put those worlds magically together. And this is a trait remarkable SaaS companies master. They understand they cannot please everyone. They focus on the essence and then create something that's valuable and desirable. And you can master these traits as well. The first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will start within the first 10 minutes. Back to the interview. Well, it's definitely in psychographics in this case. You know, they, get, they value certain things. They value certain freedom in certain ways. They care about things. They get frustrated with certain type of things. And I think you, you really nicely fit into that mix. And the question at the end is, how do you find them? And likely it's kind of, yeah, the word of mouth starts there, but it's always an interesting one to nail. But good that you see that already very early in the whole life cycle. I mean, one thing that it's, yeah, that puzzles me here or that I'd like to, to ask, has there been any thing that you expected to go this way, but went the other way? Like what was a very counterintuitive thing that happened that made mm-hmm. a difference for you? Okay, there's a few. One would be the scale that we've had to operate at kind of right out of the gate. And so for some of these merchants that are building custom applications that, you know, implement these automated workflows or whatever, the reason that they're interested in, you know, paying a developer to build them an automation is because there's an ROI because it's like some humans sitting back there, you know, clicking and that time of theirs is like more expensive than developers time to build the automation, right? Developers are like really expensive though, right? Like the tipping point for that ROI is like pretty late into the stage of these businesses. And so we didn't correctly anticipate the fact that like the people building custom apps have huge data volumes and that's why they want automations. And so that makes that kind of an unappealing market. It's the market that we're in and the market that we're focused on, we're stuck with it, but it just sucks that we have to like do a bunch of kind of operations work and kind of performance work right out of the gate because we chose this customer segment that has kind of demanding data volumes and challenges. To be fair, like that's what we want to sell right? Like as a platform for software developers, we would consider scaling and performance optimization, undifferentiated work in a lot of circumstances. It's important. It's like your thing needs to be fast and it needs to work all the time, but it'd be great if you could spend your time, you know, focused on the business logic instead of scaling it. So it's what we sell. It just usually I think startups can get away with kind of attracting only small customers at the beginning. And like, you know, they move up market and they move into the kind of bigger, more challenging to satisfy customers like later. Whereas we kind of found we had to, or we chose accidentally to start with that. There's a second one. 
Oh, yeah. Just the kind of internal challenges around context building for horizontal products. It's that there's just a lot of different touch points for what Gadget is to people, like a lot of different product surfaces. And when we hire somebody, like they're always surprised at kind of like they unearth a rock and they find a whole subsystem and a whole like mini product in there that they didn't know existed. And again, it's, it's part of our strategy about these like commingling many of these things, just kind of this, this recipe that comes out of the box with many of these different aspects. But it means that like, I really, really care about retention at Gadget of our employees because we've spent a lot of time investing in building that context among everybody. And like, I hear about, you know, Silicon Valley engineering organizations growing 100% in six months where it's like you, you have like as many new coworkers as you did old coworkers like twice a year. Yeah. That boggles my mind. And, and I have no idea if we could ever pull that off because I think we'd end up with just people that don't understand, you know, even a tiny slice of what we're doing or why we're doing it, kind of mentoring and leading others yeah. to and do and the same thing. growing because that is at the end the value prop of the whole company, you know, that you, you provide all the bricks. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, one of the things I recently did some study on asking CEOs that are in my network, like what is the biggest problem they are trying to solve that seems impossible to solve? And one thing that came back was a very obvious one, obviously, retention or like hiring new people, finding the right people with the right skills. But of course, the question around retention is a very interesting one. I mean, have you found what has worked for you to ensure that people stay with you and want to stay with you? Right. Like, I think we are small, so I feel like I don't, I have mostly anic data as opposed to any kind of real report. But the first thing I would say is we try to be really upfront in the hiring process about the specific, like the nature of the work at Gadget. So like one of our like third or fourth hires was a recruiter. And I still think that's a really, really good decision. If we plan to build this kind of like world-class engineering team in a place like Ottawa, where like we're located, like it's just going to involve a lot of outreach, a lot of kind of brokering of good relationships with potential candidates. So anyways, like we're a fully on-site company, not hybrid and not remote. Yeah. And that appeals to a certain kind of person. And so we just like kind of, we see that as a strength, right? I think it's a question of when we are forced to go remote or go hybrid, but we're able to kind of like galvanize certain folks who are like, I miss the office so much. I really like collaborating around a whiteboard. I really like the lunch chats. Like they want that. And so they're interested in working for us and like having a recruiter that's able to kind of like leverage that is is really nice. And so retention, I think just starts, yeah, with hiring the right people. And then the second thing that I think has played well is a deep empathy for the absolute bananas nature of the world right now. Like in talking to a few of my kind of peer CEOs and like other hiring managers, like turnover in the past, like attrition, people leaving in the past couple of years has been like off the walls, like bananas high, like double, triple, quadruple, what it maybe was the two years prior. And I think it's like lots of people realizing they can now work from home, like change, change the relationship with their work, like completely work at any company they want. Lots of people just like frustrated. And so they like switch to a job that, you know, isn't as taxing on their life. Lots of people like depressed and burnt out from just the pandemic being the worst. And so I think one thing we've done is just like let people feel what they feel and not expect them to be kind of, I always call it magical work accomplishing robots. Like, yes, startup is hard and important. And like, yes, I want this to succeed. But driving people to the point where they go mad 
because like the world's, you know, bananas around them that that doesn't serve us. Like that's a shitty thing to do as a person and not a very smart business move where they just burn out and leave and take all the context with them. Right. So yeah, we've tried to be flexible and I think that's helped. What aspect of the whole hiring process or the stickiness of people has got to do with your vision? A lot. So hiring developers is much easier at Gadget than I found it at Shopify because again, they often have felt that intrinsic, there has to be a better way feeling. And it's like problem candy, if you ask me, like being like, okay, build this general purpose system that makes developers go a million times faster for yourself, like where you have deep empathy for the problem, like they tend to really enjoy it. Hiring developers is great. Hiring designers, much more challenging than I found it in the past. And, And the reason is you have to sell them on this like very nerdy problem space, like very abstract and like complicated. And then the thing with like, I think software for power users is that I often wouldn't classify it as like beautiful. Like the intention is often more to like get out of the way. If you can imagine say like Photoshop or something like that, right? It's like 95% of the screens dedicated to the canvas where the creator is creating. And then these are like these kind of like ugly widgets decorating that that are all very dense and meant for just kind of like very rapid like employment to do the job you're trying to do. And so it's not an opportunity for kind of like, you know, reams of beautiful illustrations or whatever that I think like some kind of visual designers are really into. That said, like there's lots of designers that are like super stimulated by all the challenges. And it's really fun to learn about this like really deep area that they can kind of master and, and work on. And I think so the answer is like UX designers and logicians, I think are the folks that work the best there. And then like, One final thing I'll just say is we did this on-site thing because it's the way my co-founder and I want to work. We want the kind of highest bandwidth for collaboration for this like super context heavy, super stressful kind of horizontal build. We just know we need to be able to talk to each other really, really easily. And we know that Ottawa, like where we live, doesn't have enough senior talent for us to make a remote company work. Like I find that if you're doing full remote, you generally tend to hire more senior people that are like self-starters and able to kind of like prioritize themselves or unblock themselves or whatever. They're like specifically mentoring over Zoom or like coaching someone into becoming an amazing person over Zoom is like much harder. And so we think we're going to have to hire junior people from our kind of more constrained talent pool here. And so we want to be on site so that, you know, they feel very comfortable tapping their kind of mentor on the shoulder, asking for help. Yeah, I was already expecting that also like the area where you started the business in the first place. And that makes total sense. And it, maybe it's also like counterintuitive because everybody's going remote right now and you do you go upstream, you, you go in the office. And I completely agree with you as well on the part where it's around building this horizontal software that you need to think about so many different things to not yeah, restrict it too much. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. One thing that you said earlier on is we want to become a company builder. 
Mm-hmm. Is that the overarching revolution that you try to create? Absolutely. Absolutely. So Tell I me. think like credit where credit's due, this is the same vision as Shopify, which is where my co-founder Mo and I used to work. Like Shopify exists, create more entrepreneurship in the world. They want to be a platform for people to sell stuff. I think that we believe the same thing is necessary and useful for the world, but that like software should be included in that vision that there's just a gazillion problems that everyday people have that software can help solve. Like the people that are going to do that aren't going to be Mo and I who build a hundred or a thousand companies. We'd rather build the platform that allows every idea to kind of flourish and blossom. So that's like, yeah, I think that's a noble cause for us. The other thing is, is that I think it's actually the only way to make these businesses work. For example, like many of the no-code and low-code tools that are out there that kind of purport to be company builders, I think like they don't really grow with you. I think that they're really great for getting something off the ground, but that when you begin to hit scale or when you begin to like want to violate what the platform kind of allows you to do on the rails, you end up in trouble. That's not bad per se, right? Like if you manage to survive two years off a no-code platform because you weren't able to hire a dev team, like that's fantastic. You're two years ahead of where you would have been otherwise. What I think we want from Gadget is to kind of be something that someone can start on and end up on, you know, seven, 10 years later, driving really meaningful revenue for us and us adding really meaningful value for them where they've been fast that whole period, right? There was no big pause on product development because they had to replatform off the low-code or no-code tool. So like those low-code or no-code tools, a bunch of them have been like adjusting their pricing recently because I think they've noticed they have a lot of top-end churn where it's like people are leaving once their stuff gets complicated. And Uh so their pricing has all shifted kind of like down, if that makes sense, where they begin charging what would have been a free user much Mm -hmm. earlier in order to make enough money that the LTV is there before that person churns. And so what we're hoping is our free tier can last a lot longer on a customer's journey because our churn point is much farther along in their journey and our LTV is like way, way higher, right? Just as kind of one point of anecdata, like a no-code tool might give you five, $10 free kind of credits a month or something like that. Whereas like the AWSs and the Google clouds of the world are handing out, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars in startup credits. Like we, like there's a startup program that gives $100,000 of free credits to these clouds. And because that is an acceptable cost of customer acquisition for them, because the people, the relationships are so sticky and the revenue is so high, like long-term. So I don't think we're going to be at that level eventually, but our CAC can be like quite high if we have the kind of longevity in LTV. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that brings me to another section in the interview. Like, what did you learn selling this? How did traction start it for you? With a lot of work. <laughs> like, honestly, my co-founder Mo is largely responsible for this, and he just hustled. Like, there's no other way to put it. He bashed his head against the computer for a long time. I think, like, the specific activities were kind of like posting on the forums where we hoped to find customers, kind of like reaching out, participating in Twitter threads, like that kind of stuff. And then we kind of slowly refined that like first demo call over time to kind of portray the product in a really good light. And so I think both of us are somewhat new to like these like early stage go-to-market kind of motions. And the only way to do it is just to like try, you know, try like spaghetti meat wall over and over and over. We found like we're lucky and I mean, it's a little on purpose that we're able to use our existing connections in the Shopify ecosystem, right? I was at Shopify for seven years. Mo was there for five years. Mo is like the GM 
of Shopify Money, which is the like the team that built ShopPay and a bunch of the kind of most successful products that Shopify has. And so we're able to leverage a little bit of nepotism to get to open doors. And like, that's, you know, a cheat code, but that's exactly why we picked this niche to start with, right? It's yeah. like, why make it any harder than it needs to be? Exactly. Let's, let's take advantage. What do you try to prove? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one. And has there been a moment where you suddenly started to feel a tipping point where the adoption started to go and what caused that? I think we're just on the precipice of that. Like Uh we know when we kind of spend some marketing dollars or like send a lot of demo calls, we convert a certain number of customers and that feels really rewarding. That ratio isn't there yet for us. Like we feel like the product still has a couple blockers. There's still chunks of it that are just not a good enough experience. And so we're not kind of like turning the jets on quite yet. I don't think that there's like a giant pivot lurking in the wings for us. There's just some execution. And then kind of the coarse grain decisions after that becomes like, where in the Chef ecosystem do we focus? And like how fast or greedy are we about expanding beyond that to say all of e-commerce or to a whole other software vertical altogether? Yeah, okay. Do you see yourself kind of moving towards product-led growth or more towards a sales-led growth organization? Because I mean, I sort of feel both here. Yeah, the for sure. model. For sure. So the thing is, our experience at Shopify was in both. And so I think we expect to do both. I think that's kind of like if you were an investor, you maybe dock me points for that answer, right? Sounds unfocused. The thing is, though, that what we witnessed at Shopify was that bothness work. And the idea is you want to capture people as early as possible. So you have a captive relationship with them to sell more and more stuff to them over time and try to grow with them for as long as possible. So it's product-led growth at the bottom end to kind of build relationships with people and then kind of increasing opportunities for monetization over time. And the thing with software is that there are these like wild, rapid explosions in kind of individual customers scale, right? Someone goes viral on Reddit, like some app kind of, you know, does really great in the app store. Like they need kind of extreme elasticity and kind of the promise that the cloud fulfills, which is the ability to ramp up incredibly quickly. And so we're hoping that we cast a wide net and catch a few whales. That's what worked at Shopify and that's what we plan to do as well. But the trick is to like get, convert them to the upper echelons. You need kind of a handheld approach. And so we expect to, to not be you know, purely PLG. Okay, that, that makes complete sense. And it's like also the, kind of the way you can play with this. On this journey, two years now, what has been a really big obstacle that you had to overcome? Mm. And what helped you do that? I think like the founder emotional states I hope that you hear that really often, but Mo and I have just found it to be an arduous journey. I would say we have it pretty good, right? Like we have lots of entrepreneurship experience. We have existing networks. We're able to hire people. We're able to get in the door with lots of investors and close around what I think is a fair valuation. Like we are by all intents, like successful for the stage that we're at, but it's still been like really hard. (laughs) So I think that's been an obstacle just from just managing oneself. And it's like Mo and I have a great relationship. I really, really enjoy working with him. But like, no matter what, if you spend 60 hours in the same room, staring at the same screen next to the same person, like you end up kind of like butting heads on stuff, you know? So we've successfully navigated that, I would say, but like, I know that'll be hard forever, basically, of just like having lots of people around doing, you know, hard work. Other than that, though, I don't think anything has been too kind of immensely challenging. Yeah, that's good. But I mean, it's a common story. Like there's all these, these humps and bumps. Yeah, I mean, let me take it to kind of your philosophy on a couple of things. I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect, which is about the 10 traits that define those software companies that we start talking about and then keep talking about. 
in your journey, when first of all, your journey with Shopify, and now, of course, a two-year journey with Gadget, what do you believe is a trait or one or two traits that you need to have in order to build something that's remarkable? I think pursuant to the last answer, like persistence, right? I think the thing that has set Mo and I apart so far has just been like a willingness to keep getting up and doing it, right? When you say humps and bumps, like that's exactly it. But the thing is, is that some days there are 10 of them. Some days it's like you just take like an eight punch combo to the face where it's like, this thing didn't work. That thing broke. This person wants to like quit or take, take a time off. Like it's just like, you know, an assault on the senses. Each one of those things is totally overcomable, right? If you have time and energy and like you're capable and well-resourced, like I feel like lots of people can overcome lots of stuff. It's just that the volume and never endingness of it is a challenge. Another trait. I think like, Mo and I are both obsessed with this thing that I think we both learned from Toby, who's the CEO of Shopify, which we would call like solving the problem at the right level. Yeah. And it's the idea that like when you have a problem, you have to see it in the context of the system it exists in. This comes easy to me because it's like in computer world, it's like literally is a problem with the file system, a problem with the database, a problem with the network, so on and so forth. But it's the same for the company as well, which is like, is this person acting strange or undesirably because like of who they are as a person, like their own values or because of the incentive system around them or because like the manager who set up the incentive system was poorly incentivized, like walking these things back and taking a systems thinking level approach to trying to fix things, I think is like how you end up with something that has longevity where you don't kind of like have pockets of kind of mismanagement or bad experience that ends up kind of threatening you. Yeah, I really like that. That's also in well in relation to not only being remarkable and solving the thing that really needs to be solved, but also indeed, as you say, longevity, the, the resilience of the company. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it just keeps things going on and it just stops everything else. What are you most proud of achieving so far? What is a story that you keep telling, possibly also even helping you with the persistence that you need? Great question. I think so like the other day, Mo's partner who works for us, kind of a different software company, needed an, a really simple software application that was like internet connected that like tracked. She wanted to send a survey out in an email where she wanted to just like figure out kind of what a whole group of people wanted to do with something. And it's like a branded thing. So like they didn't want to send a type form or like a Google form out to all their customers and kind of look amateurish. So they needed like some really simple way to just like have people click one of three buttons in an email and collect the number of responses. And Mo texted me about it at like 8.30 in the morning on a Saturday. And I had the app built and deployed and launched by like before I'd finished my coffee, like before 9 a.m. Wow. And like I hadn't sat back and just built a simple application in a long time. Not the most complicated of applications, but just like it all worked and it really only took minutes, like under an hour. And so I was like, I was very pleased with that. <laughs> yeah. That is the power of the platform. You build it the right way, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, getting towards my final questions here, from all the lessons that you learned being an entrepreneur now, what would be a do that you would recommend to other aspiring tech entrepreneurs and possibly a don't? I think the do would be treat yourself like a human that has needs. <laughs> that if you expect yourself to be a work accomplishing robot, like you're going to destroy all the relationships you have around you and the support system that you need and the like the energy you need to summon to overcome the humps and bumps. So like a single dimensional human does not make a good entrepreneur. If you ask me. Yeah. And that single dimension is often work for them. Yeah. 
and then a don't. Maybe this is controversial, but like my don't would be like, don't worry, you're going to be fine. And I think I mean that from like, I see, I talk to so many people that are so anxious about if their company is going to succeed or fail. And like, I will hire a failed entrepreneur like a hundred times over, a thousand times over. It's such an incredible skill set that people build in the phase of starting a company that like, my guess is like, even if your startup fails, you're going to get an excellent job and be able to provide for the people you need to provide for after. Like the risk to you as a human, I think is lower than you might perceive. And so like, I don't know if that's true. Like maybe that's just a, a privileged tech industry thing, but like, I feel like entrepreneurs are generally such desirable hires that they have security, even though it, they don't have it on paper. That's well said, and I completely agree with you. They took all the risks, they learned all the lessons. There's so much value in that. Yeah. Really, really, yeah. I mean, thank you for sharing this, and thank you for taking us through the story of Gadget and the big aspiration that you have, the revolution that you try to create by becoming a company builder. I'm going to follow you on your journey there. Yeah, good luck with the next two years. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks so much. I hope we get to talk again then, and I have yeah. all different answers because I've learned a lot more, you know? Where can people go to find out more about your company and to say hi to you? Absolutely. So we're at gadget.dev. If you want to like try out the product, you can sign up there. It's free for now. And then I'm at Harry Brendage on Twitter if you want to hang out with me. Okay. That's all noted and it's going to be loud and clear when the podcast releases. Thank you for this, Harry. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And this ends my conversation with Harry. And I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, Please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning in to this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Harry Brundage, co-founder and CEO at Gadget. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.